Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. and prayers go out to those people in the Caribbean and South Florida whose lives have been upended many permanently uh, and for those who have lost their lives. Uh, After the hurricanes, we still have millions of foreclosures that have been started or will be started, some because of that storm, Hurricane Irma. What will open the eyes of judges and lawyers generally to the continuing illegal onslaught of fraudulent foreclosures and fraudulent modifications? Neil Garfield here, and this is Thursday, September 14, 2017. Returning tonight is an old friend, Patricia Rodriguez, California attorney. I'm pleased to have her join me again. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, where we were hit. Um, I personally was without power and Internet for about uh, 36 hours. Um, This program is brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners just like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345, which is our main number but not the number for this show, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. A lot of you know that we've been providing services for individual homeowners and lawyers and uh, uh, forensic analysts, etc., to help boost their ability to confront the banks. So this is a special note to those who may have experience with crowdfunding. We have a massive IT project that we want to launch, and we have the technical people to produce document generation for each user, for each case, to help homeowners fight the banks. And, of course, we need funding. If you have the experience and knowledge regarding 
crowdfunding, please contact me at neilfgarfield at hotmail.com. Welcome, Patricia, to our show, and thank you again for volunteering your valuable time to make mortgages and foreclosures more understandable. Hi, Neil. It's always my pleasure to be here. Well, it's my pleasure, too, so it's mutual pleasure. Um, How long have you been representing homeowners in foreclosure defense? I have had the pleasure of working in this particular area of practice now here for almost seven and a half years, Um, and predominantly my practice is focused on foreclosure defense, even at one point being designated an expert by a judge in a criminal court in the areas of foreclosure defense and writs of possession. Excellent. Yeah, and you've done quite well with it, and... uh... Uh, as I've remarked before, you have a pretty good uh, uh, infrastructure in terms of uh, of uh, uh, vetting and interviewing and uh, uh, getting uh, people who are distressed uh, into the right position uh, to be able to uh, uh, perhaps save their homes. Um, and otherwise, uh, if necessary, uh, litigate. And, of course, there's modification, which I am ambivalent about in a way, uh, because we're first uh, starting out by litigating on the point that these people have no right to even talk to us, much less uh, foreclose on us, and then we turn around and modify loan with them, which actually transfer ownership of the loan from whoever did deserve it to them. So what what do you consider to be your main mission in these cases of foreclosure defense? Well, I think first it's important to take an individual case-by-case analysis and try to determine first for each individual, is it a good match? Is our firm able to do something? Are we able to litigate the issues? Are we able to inform them of their rights? If we're not able to do anything for them, is there another firm that is that we can refer them to? But if we are able to help them, then it's really about keeping them informed, always communicating with them, and our mission is to ensure that they you know, receive justice in relation to their claims. Um, that can look a myriad of different ways, right? It can result in litigation that results in a settlement. It can can result in advising them to walk away. Um, So what ultimately the outcome is is different than the mission. The mission is to find out what their rights are, inform them of their rights, and enforce their rights and or help them walk away from a bad situation. That seems well expressed. I, I also want to make a comment here for the benefit of the uh, uh, of our listeners. That is that um, the usual homeowner is expecting um, when they first go to a law office, they're they're expecting or hoping to have, you know, an instant relationship with Patricia or one of her other lawyers. And they, I frequently will hear 
about offices that are organized to be able to do volume that they're like a factory. My answer to that is you're uh, being forced to confront the banks because a legal factory on the other side is operating and they can afford to uh, take on volume and they can afford to uh, limit the number of clients that they have and so forth. The usual homeowner doesn't have the funds to spend $100,000 or $200,000 on a case. And it's for that reason that in 2008, I came up with what I called the hub and spoke uh, business plan for lawyers, which was that they set up an infrastructure of people that first interview and get the basic information about a homeowner and what his situation is or her situation or their situation, and then gradually escalate it or move it around in the firm so that the right homeowner gets with the right lawyer and has the right strategy on a case-by-case -case basis, as Patricia has, has said. And Patricia has one of those offices that does that, and the only reason why it doesn't cost a fortune to hire Patricia is because she does that. So I just want to remind people when they, uh, if they call Patricia or one of the other offices that uh, has that kind of infrastructure, uh, that, yes, to an extent, it is a process um, um, where it may seem like a factory, but it really is designed for your benefit. And um, uh, I, I would encourage other lawyers to do the same thing because, frankly, you make more money doing it that way and you help far more people. So uh, that's my plug for uh, the kind of business model that Patricia Rodriguez uh, uh, is following, and I applaud her in doing that. Um, all right, Patricia, with all the fake forged robo-signed, et cetera, documents that ha have been known to exist, particularly since the consent judgments in 2010, uh, what do you perceive as the, the main problem with getting judges to keep an open mind that it's possible that the real creditor is nowhere near the courtroom? I think the biggest issue is that they're just like human beings, and they're looking at your plaintiff, and they're thinking, wait a second, I have to pay my mortgage. Why shouldn't he have to pay his mortgage? And am I really going to be the judge that issues an order that gives him back his mortgage because the real creditor and interest is nowhere to be found, and now I've set the precedent for 45 million mortgages to go back to the borrowers, for the banks to go under overnight, which seemingly we've been told, you know, is not something that can happen, right? A lot of it has to do with you can't take the banks under because they're too big to fail. And so I think you're just dealing with, perception you're just dealing with the you know the court's perception that it it's going to create this landslide this waterfall that it can't control 
and also just that that concept that the degenerate borrower, you know, is going to get a free house. All of those make it just very difficult for you to convince a judge that anything the bank has done wrong really means that they don't get the loan and that they can't enforce it. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Um, and the the issue that we all face every day in in this business of trying to help people protect their homes uh, is is that perception and what to do to uh, see if we can get the, the judge to open their mind to other possibilities and perhaps remind the judge that he's not necessarily giving a free house. Whoever the creditor is can get a judgment or can work it out uh, with the borrower and the right thing will have happened. If they get a judgment, they can execute the judgment. And in many states, the homestead protection is very small, five or $10,000 in some states. So there's, there's no free house here uh, that's ever uh, uh, been involved, although in those cases where borrowers have won flat out and the uh, foreclosing party has boxed itself into a corner, it has happened in hundreds of cases, if not thousands, that the foreclosing party, the servicer, and the lawyers just walk away. And in a way, that's a free house, but you still have that deed of trust encumbering the property, and you still have the mortgage in the other judicial states that's encumbering the property. So the notion of a free house is something that I always try to uh, uh, meet head on uh, when I've tried cases. Um, and I basically say, Judge, this is not a case where it's a free house for the borrower if the borrower wins. Uh, and I go through the explanation that I just did. And um, uh, and, and then I say, if we're right, Judge, then the only free house is going to the other side who has no business being in this courtroom and is intervening between my client and the actual creditor, both of whom would rather work things out than be here in this courtroom. So, all right, moving on because we don't have a lot of time this evening. Um, we all know the elements of a valid trust, um, a trust that could have standing to do anything, including appear in a courtroom. The elements of a valid trust um, uh, are that you have to have a trustor, that is the person who is creating the trust, a trustee, which is the person who is going to be entrusted with money or property, beneficiaries, a trust instrument, 
that directs the terms of what to do for the beneficiaries. And then the one thing that is needed to have a valid trust, even if the instrument is just sparkling clean and pure genius, is that there is no trust if property is not entrusted to the trustee. So so one of the elements is that something must be entrusted to the trustee. Why do you think, Patricia, why are so many lawyers and judges reluctant to scrutinize the requirements under trust law, just as they've been reluctant to really study the UCC, maybe because they slept through it in law school, I don't know. Um, Why do you think that so many lawyers and judges are reluctant to scrutinize this essential element that there has to be a race to the trust and, and fail to raise those issues when there's zero evidence that any money was ever entrusted to the trust and therefore no debts, notes, or mortgages were purchased or acquired because the trust doesn't exist without something in it. It's black letter law if no money or property, tangible or intangible, has been entrusted to the trustee. There can be no valid entity entity calling itself a trust that exists as a legal person. So what do you what's your view on this and do you have any instructive comments about how to potentially deal with this in the courtroom? Well, I think this is why it's been litigated here in California pretty heavily in the context of whether or not these documents made it into the trust by the closing date. So all these loans were securitized, and if these documents, these documents being the assignments and the endorsements, didn't make it to the custodian, you know, to the trustee of the securitized trust by the closing date, then these loans didn't make it into the trust. If they didn't make it into the trust, then there's no res. But the argument that the other side has put forth that the courts to a larger degree have accepted is that, no, these these loans did make it into the trust. And if they didn't, that's something that can be easily fixed with these late assignments. And so their argument, and again, the courts have accepted to a large degree, that these trusts do hold the deeds of trust, uh, the notes and mortgages, as to all of these loans that are seemingly bundled and packaged into the securitization. I mean, I think in all regards, if you look at the black letter law and you look at the way it's been applied in the mortgage industry, especially since 2006, 2007, it's not consistent with how it's been applied previous to that in the mortgage industry or in any other industry. You know, common contract law has seemingly gone out the window and it has a different applicability in the context of foreclosures and in the context of the banks. And this is no exception as far as the trust and the res uh, not being there. You know, I've heard that argument about, well, it could be ratified. It could be uh, fixed later and all that. The Internal Revenue Code provides the uh, restrictions on a real estate mortgage investment conduit, which is these trusts. 
and it provides that you can only be in business for 90 days during which you acquire whatever you're going to acquire, and thereafter you're supposed to be a pass-through entity. If you were to, if, if anyone was to actually make the fix five years later or whatever, um, or ratify something as a, as a new transaction later, they would lose their remix status, which means that all the income that is going to the beneficiaries um, would be taxable, including return of principal, and all of the income attributable to the trust would be taxable, giving you double taxation. There's nobody on earth who's ever going to do that. So the, it, it's a fiction, an illusion, to think that there is a single trust in the world that would enter into a new business transaction after the closing date was final. Because if, if they did, the whole purpose of the trust for the investors would be lost in terms of tax advantages and, um, uh, and income. They would receive, in essence, a negative income by being taxed on the principal they were receiving. So uh, I know that that's an involved challenge to, to that notion. And what I'm working on is how to present that in a way that... Um, uh, will be compelling to a judge. Uh, right now, they're not buying it, and they're just looking to case law, like in your state, Patricia, where they say, well, it could be ratified. And theoretically, it's possible that the act of ratification could be done. It's just that if they did do it, they'd be slit, uh, slitting their own throats. So... I guess my uh, uh, what I want to move on to real quickly because we're running out of time already. What's your experience with the claims by lawyers, servicers, trusts, and other parties that they have consulted with investors? You've seen, I'm, prob I'm, I'm assuming, thousands at this point of cases where people come into you and. They say, we, we sent in our request for a modification, we signed everything, we gave them all the documents, and then they told us the investor turned it down. In my experience, neither the self-proclaimed servicer nor the lawyers have any communication or any relationship with the investors. I've seen no evidence, not for lack of trying, that there was any contact with the owner of a debt when a homeowner is told the investors turned down the offer to modify. In other words, I don't think there ever was an offer made to the investors that related to any of these specific loans in which the investor had the power or the inclination to turn down the modification which would have given them a performing loan. What do you see in, in, in your practice with that? 
Sure. Um, and I think this is where a case-by-case analysis is really pivotal and critical. Um, a lot of our cases, you know, don't get past the demur stage just because of the way the courts view these cases and or because we're able to settle them. Um, so those kind of knock out that. So then you're looking at a small pool, you know, a much smaller pool of cases that are going to go to trial, that are going to go into discovery stage. And I've actually found when in the discovery stage, and not to contradict anything that, you know, has been your experience, that there is an investor, at least an alleged investor, and an alleged trustee of the Securitized Trust, and there usually is some communications between this alleged investor and the servicer. It's usually something to the effect of an agreement, and that agreement basically just says servicer is able to do and make all decisions, you know. So it's key if the denial says, you know, the investor per the guidelines won't modify, but then there's an agreement between the investor and the servicer that you get in discovery and in depositions that says um, servicer has all the rights to modify and investor will do whatever servicer tells them. Well, then they're lying. That's a direct contradiction. That's at least a business and professions code violation for being unfair business practices. Um, but there's probably other claims in there as well, um, an arbitrary denial under the Homeowner Bill of Rights. Um, so we do get that sometimes where they've lied in one instance or another. Um, it's really good. And for a long time, we were getting witnesses from both the servicer and the investor, you know, we would do their person most knowledgeable and what would happen is is one would say you know we don't have authority the servicer has authority that would come from the investor and then the servicers would get up there and say oh we don't have authority the investor has authority so now everybody's negotiating bad faith because seemingly nobody has authority yet they're taking all of these documents and they're pretending as though they're actually in good faith reviewing this modification um so it's very fact-specific, and more recently, because they were getting caught in lies, they'll try to give you the same witness for both entities. They'll try to say, oh, SPS has a power of attorney over U.S. Bank, so you only get one witness. Well, that's not permissible. So you take a non-appearance, basically, of that second deposition of your investor, and you may have to go on on a motion to compel. Um, but they started to make it harder for us to get testimony from both the investor and the uh, servicer because, yes, we were constantly, whether it be that they were lying that they did have authority or that they didn't have authority, it was just constantly lies happening back and forth between the investor and the servicer and the borrower. That's a, a very good point. That I've encountered myself, and it raises a number of issues uh, uh, in terms of tactics and strategy about how you deal with it when they want to produce one witness for two different companies. Um, and uh, um, I took the tack initially in one case, which I eventually won anyway, but I took the tack that the, uh, uh, the, the plaintiff never showed up at mediation because of that. Um, the only person that, the, it was U.S. Bank as trustee for the blah 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 trust, and um, uh, the uh, servicer came in and said, you know, uh, we represent... Uh, U.S. Bank, and the way that they represented U.S. Bank as servicer, et cetera, was, just as you said, through a power of attorney, which in that case was signed by the wrong people and introduced a brand-new bank into the chain, 
which made it more difficult for them to prevail and uh, easier for Patrick Junta and I to uh, uh, have our client prevail. So in uh, uh, 60 seconds or less, uh, do you see changes in foreclosure defense happening? Well, I think it's critical to understand that it's always going to be a changing landscape. There's definitely a lot of appeal cases that are challenging these issues as to void and voidable and as to these issues of standing pre-foreclosure. So I anticipate things coming down the pipeline in those issues. Um, and additionally, SB 900 is set to sunset at the end of the year. So we anticipate there being an amendment to extend it. But if there isn't an amendment that extends it past 2017, then we could see a big change in loan modification review again as well. That's kind of the way I see it happening, too. I think there's going to be a big change in loan modifications. Well, thank you, Patricia, again. And we have run out of time again. I look <sighs> forward to having you back again. And have a good week. And we'll be back next Thursday. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.